0: You are listening to episode number 106 of the Self Care Sunday podcast, and today's episode is an interview with Dr. Julie Thorne discussing sexual and reproductive health, sponsored by Me and IUC. For more information, go to birthcontrolforme.ca. <music> If you're new here, my name is Kaylee, and I'm the host of the Self-Care Sunday podcast, where we chat about everything from mental health to entrepreneurship to creativity and, of course, self-care. I started this podcast as both a way to document my own mental health and self-care journey and also to have conversations about self-care in a way that is not necessarily cliche bubble baths and face masks, but diving into some deeper conversations around social media, burnout, how our physical health impacts our mental health health and today specifically we're going to be talking about sexual and reproductive health which is not a topic I have ever shared on self-care Sunday before in this way and I'm so grateful to have an expert in the space come on and share her insights as well as her advice and expertise so let me introduce you to Dr. Julie Thorne. Dr. Julie Thorne is an OBGYN and current family planning lead for Women's College Hospital and Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. She spent 2018 to 2020 working in Kenya with the Ampath Consortium, and her time there has given her an important perspective on global women's health, health systems, and innovative ways of thinking about care delivery. Dr. Thorne's fellowship was in the care program at Queen's University, and she is most passionate about contraception for family planning and for menstrual management, as well as safe and accessible abortion care. In today's episode, I ask some frequently asked questions around birth control. We do some myth-busting around some stigmatized women's health issues. And Dr. Julie Thorne gives her advice on how to best educate ourselves and have these conversations with our doctors. All right. Hi. So I would love to start with a bit of your journey and background. And for the listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with you, what sparked your interest in working in women's health specifically, sexual and reproductive health? And how did you get to this point that you're at now?
1: Great questions. Thank you. I think that it was my family that inspired me to go into women's reproductive health. And Doctors Without Borders. I was raised by a single mother. I have a lot of family that are single women who struggled and really were resilient in sort of staking their place and in raising me. And that was pretty powerful and pretty powerful role models that then made me say, how can I give back? How can I care for them? And I learned about Doctors Without Borders when they won the Nobel Peace Prize. I was in high school at the time and the work that they did was just, you know, awe-inspiring. It may sound a bit cliché a little bit, but it was 100% what influenced me to go into medicine and in particular maternal mortality and the struggle that women go through every day to raise their families and make ends meet really inspired me to want to do the work that I do. The idea that the environment in which we live can turn genes on and off in pregnancy to end up with certain results in a newborn and in a child's life really fascinated me from a science standpoint, and I did a bit of research in my undergrad. And then when I actually got into medicine and did the practice, it's an incredibly diverse field. There's really no other field in which I can operate, do births, do some primary care, and so it was really diverse and kind of appealed to a lot of different parts of what I like to do. Global women's health has remained important to me throughout that, and reproductive justice has remained important to me throughout that. And so this idea that women can take control of their bodies, their autonomy, their agency in when and if they will have children, when and how they menstruate, how and with whom they may have sex with, all of that I found really inspiring. And so I wanted to get into that field. So I did a contraception fellowship, and I saw international opportunities And that's how I worked in Kenya for two years and then circled back to where I trained, which is the University of Toronto, to pursue further opportunities to provide care and grow a center of excellence in family planning.
0: That's really amazing. And this whole conversation is going to be fascinating to me. I am going to be completely transparent in saying that these types of topics, to me, felt super uncomfortable up until maybe just a couple of years ago and i'm 27 years old now so for the majority of my adolescence my teenage years being a young adult i still felt really you know weird and uncomfortable talking about Things like my sexual and reproductive health, even with doctors. And I'm curious if that's an experience that you see amongst the majority of women that come to you as patients. And if so, you know, why is it important for us to be having these conversations?
1: I absolutely see patients coming to me not comfortable talking about their sexual health. Sometimes the reason, I mean, you know, I'm a gynecologist, I'm a specialist. So sometimes by the time they get to me, there's an issue that's been raised and that's the point in which I'm seeing them. But then also sometimes we'll have side conversations and uncover that they haven't talked about their sexual health, or that there's really something that's been bothering them. That's not at all the reason they were referred. And then we can open that conversation. And so then I would shift to say, I'm actually noticing that women and people are coming to me more and more wanting to ask questions. And I hope that that's because we're really opening that space where it's okay for women to talk about sex, sexuality, contraception in a way that it it hasn't been okay before. And that is, you know, so deeply rooted in a history of oppression of women and their sexuality, I think, and the stigmatization and, and shamefulness that's been associated with it that we're really trying to undo.
0: Yeah, and I think one of my questions too comes from the amount of media, we'll call it online now, where women and and young people in general can be kind of self-educating with what they consume online. You know, I'm sure that this is maybe not the best way for people to be learning about some of these things, but what would you say are some of the best ways for us to be educating ourselves on these topics? Or is it really, you know, just having more conversations with professionals like yourself or with their own doctor?
1: I think having conversations with their own doctor or with specialists are important and they're meant to be a resource. And we know that a lot of people still see their primary care provider, like their nurse practitioner or family doctor as the primary source for health information. And that's important. I also think that Just like women are trying to educate themselves more and more on their contraceptive options or how to have agency over their reproductive health, so are family doctors and and primary care practitioners trying to get you know more comfortable and more up to date with how to have these conversations and with all the options that are out there because we are increasingly having more and more options. It's not just the pill anymore. We've got things like the intrauterine contraceptive or the implant. I also think that this idea of owning your own path and knowing your body the best that you can and advocating for yourself involves being able to access quality information that you can discover easily on your own. You know, getting a doctor's appointment is hard sometimes, but you have the flexibility of getting information from places that are online. And that's where knowing where quality information is and knowing that you can trust the source of that information or that it's evidence-based, is telling you things that we know to be true by the science that we have can be important. And so then I would direct people to websites like birthcontrolforme.ca or sexandyou.ca to get information about their contraceptive options, family planning options, other basics of sexual health.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the factors to consider when deciding what contraceptive method is right for you. For me personally, I have an IUC and I have had a positive experience with it. I think, you know, I get questions from my friends and, you know, cousins and women in my life who are considering getting an IUC and have tried other options. When you're talking to patients, what are some of the things that, you ask people to consider or some of those questions that they should be considering when choosing what's right for them. So, some of it is getting a bit of a
1: baseline on where they're at and understanding their options. I'd say that people fall generally into three categories, if I can kind of put them in boxes, where some people, when they hear birth control, they just think about pills and they're really unaware of other options. Some people have heard of other options like the IUC, but have only heard bad stories because when people are happy, they're less likely to post online about their positive experience and their negative one. And then there are people who, you know, don't really know what their birth control options are at all. And so, When I talk to them, I try to understand a little bit about their menstrual health. What are their periods like? Are they painful? Are they heavy? What are some other symptoms around their periods that may or may not bother them? I consider costs. Do they have health insurance? Can they afford the out-of-pocket costs for birth control? What is their life like? Are they good at remembering pills? Are they likely to forget? Do they need something that they can set and forget and that won't interfere with their day-to-day like an IUC will. And are they thinking about having kids? And when are they thinking about doing that? And how would they feel if they got pregnant right now? Because the reliability of contraception based on typical use is sort of how we operate. A birth control pill has more like an 8% failure rate, whereas an IUC has like a less than 1% failure rate. And so what are the stakes here in getting pregnant? And then how willing are they to try a method and cope with the side effects? And a lot of the hormonal side effects are the same or very similar. And so it's about being open to trying it, knowing there may be side effects, and it may not work for you, that we can stop it if it doesn't work for you, but you got to give it a bit of a trial before we try something else.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you're saying these failure rates, to me, just looking at the numbers, I'm like, oh, IUC is the obvious choice. (laughs) Like Mm -mm. That sounds Mm -hmm. so great to me. I actually was never on the birth control pill prior to having an IUC. The IUC was my first ever birth control option that I started using. But what are some of the pushbacks that people have? Is it really just like the idea that it's kind of foreign and misunderstood? Or is it those horror stories, I guess you could call them that turn people (laughs) off of wanting to get an IUC? I mean, the power of like
1: peers is so important. Like I'll have somebody who will be really gung ho about getting an IUC if they know a friend had a good experience. And so I do think that that idea of hearing negative experiences can drive fear, but that often it's that fear of the unknown or not understanding it completely that can make people a bit apprehensive. Some people really worry about having something inside their body, this idea of an implant, it's sort of hard to wrap their mind around. And so then, you know, it's so hard with virtual care when we're often doing phone calls, but when I have the opportunity, I'll try to show a model, show them what it looks like, show them how small it is, what their uterus looks like, and that can sometimes help demystify it. I think being honest about the experience of putting it in. Some people Barely notice it, but it causes pain. It's cramps to go in. We can't sugarcoat that. But but you're going to be okay. It will get better afterwards. And if it doesn't, we're going to look into it. And then the positives that can come with the IUC. Uh, And it depends a bit on which you know. There's the copper IUC and there's the hormonal IUC. And it depends a bit on which one we're going for in terms of what it will do to your menstrual cycles. But once it in, it's in, and people don't feel it anymore. And they realize how light their periods can get, or how their cycles don't change. If that's a goal for them, then they're really happy. But it's sort of a bit of a mind exercise, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know how in depth we want to get on this, but I do want to kind of demystify that experience of having the IUC being put in. Like, do you get average pain scales from people who are like, oh, this is a five out of 10, a seven out of 10? Or what can people expect if they're like, okay, I'm interested in this, but I'm really scared that it's going to hurt?
1: You know, it's a good idea. Maybe I should start getting pain skills. I think I do try to couch it to say that everybody experiences pain differently. And there are some people where I maybe I look at them and sort of say, Oh, this may be really hard for you. And they do amazing. Like that was it. And then there are some people who are like, Oh my God, that was the worst pain I've ever had. And I think some of that may be relative to their experiences, the pain they felt in the past, and what their expectations were. I think offering comfort when I can have a support person beside them, or they can distract themselves, sometimes that really helps. You know what it's doing is your uterus is contracting when it's being placed, and people who get menstrual cramps, it's your uterus contracting. People who go through labor, it's your uterus contracting. It is not like going through labor. There is nothing <laughs> that's like going through labor. And so I really try to support the idea that it's really short-lived. It doesn't take long to place. It may feel like a really intense cramp. We'll talk you through it. We'll give you, you know, some ibuprofen if that might be helpful for you and and it will get better. And that often works. And then at the end of it, someone will tell me, oh, it wasn't that bad. And then someone will tell me that was horrible, (laughs) but it often doesn't change how well it works afterwards. And then they get nervous when five years pass and it's due to consider a replacement. But <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: that's me right now. I think I mm-hmm. I have one more year coming up. I'm in the final year here that I'm getting nervous mm-hmm. again, thinking, okay, mm-hmm. now I need to go through that again. And so is it for most IUCs that the timeline is five years?
1: Yeah. So still, I believe one hormonal IUC that lasts for three years, but it's been removed from the market. It works. They just thought the market wasn't good enough. So, And they've come up with a new five-year that is similar side effect profile. And so they've preferentially put two different five-year hormonal IUCs out. The copper IUCs can last for 10 years and maybe even longer. It's I think it's because of the copper's in it and it doesn't really degrade or go away. And all of our how long does this work for is based on evidence and based on how the trials or studies were done. So if they only studied people for five years, then they'll report an efficacy rate for five years. You know, the higher dose hormonal IUC, we know depending on your age and therefore how relatively fertile you are, it actually can probably last for seven years for people who are over the age of 26. For some copper IUCs, if you're over the age of 35, we think it probably could last you till menopause and you wouldn't need to get it changed. And so we're learning more and more about how long they can actually last.
0: That's interesting. So are you seeing more people now being interested in those longer term options like an IUC versus the pill now that it's becoming kind of more well known, I guess you could say? Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot
1: more people open to talking about it for sure and you know I see people often who have menstrual abnormalities also and so then the IUC becomes especially the hormonal IUC becomes really helpful for people looking to make their periods lighter or less painful and people like the idea of something that they can set and forget that could last a long period of time and so I'm definitely seeing a bit of a surge in how open people are to having it and then to booking those appointments.
0: Outside of You know, the appointment to get the IUC, when you're getting it taken out or maybe a new one put in, how often should we be? talking to our doctors about our sexual health. Like what are those in between, mm. you know, appointments or check-ins that we should be having?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're using an IUC and say it's the hormonal IUC and you know you're going to use it for 5 years, you don't necessarily need repeated checks around that contraception unless you're noticing side effects like some people will notice that, that once they get into the 4th year sometimes their bleeding will come back and they don't necessarily like that or they want to talk about that for those whose periods are suppressed. So as an example, that can be a time and maybe you want to bring that conversation up. But if you you know that that's your plan and you're not going to change it, then you don't necessarily need to talk about your contraception or family planning plan. People need Pap tests. So if you're over the age of 21, you need a Pap test every 3 years and that's really important. Cervical cancer prevention is really important and we can prevent it by doing Pap tests and so In that interval, you'll need at least one extra PAP test. If you're sexually active and it's not with a consistent partner, you have multiple partners, then STI testing becomes really important. And that doesn't matter which gender you have intercourse with, thinking about what risks you might have for STIs or sexually transmitted infections are important. And then there's other aspects of your sexual health that may or may not be an issue. If you're well, then you don't really need to worry about it and you can kind of trust yourself and trust your body. But if you're having issues with sexual satisfaction, you're concerned about about whether or not something is normal in terms of your anatomy or discharge or anything like that, then I do think it's important to have those conversations, even if it's just about offering you reassurance.
0: Can we demystify pap tests? Because mm. <laughs> I was very nervous to get my first one. And I think a lot of women are nervous because it is kind of talked about as this scary thing. Can you talk about what that process is like for, you know, young women who might be listening who maybe haven't gone through that yet?
1: Yeah. So a PAP test I, I like to say it really isn't a scary thing. I, I said that if you're over the age of 21, you need a pap test. That specifically applies if you've had any kind of sexual activity. If you haven't had any kind of sexual activity with somebody else, it's unlikely you've been exposed to the virus that causes cervical cancer, which is human papillomavirus. The process of having a pap test is a speculum exam. And that's an important distinction. Some people think that they've had a pap test because they've had a speculum exam and that's not necessarily true. So a speculum is an instrument. I don't know who invented it and I don't know why we haven't found a better way to look inside the vagina, but it's this usually metal or plastic instrument that's got sort of an upper and bottom portion that can go inside the vagina and then it opens so we can see the vaginal walls and see the cervix. And that lets us examine what's going on there. We can see the discharge, we can see the tissue, we call that the mucosa, we can see the cervix, and then there's a little brush that literally looks like a miniature broom that we kind of press against the cervix and sweep it around so we can collect some of the superficial cells that are there. And it goes to the lab to get examined under a microscope and they can see if it looks normal or abnormal. But doing a speculum exam is how we do other things. We investigate abnormal bleeding. We can do cervical swabs for chlamydia and gonorrhea or bacterial vaginosis or trichomonas. Some of those are Bacterial vaginosis is not an STI, that's imbalance of bacteria in the vagina. But we can examine physics similarly, a speculum exam is how we place an IUC. And so, every person with a vagina will need a speculum exam at some point, and often at least every three years.
0: And it takes like two minutes, doesn't it? <laughs> it's
1: very fast. It's very,
0: very fast.
1: And so, I, you know, it's really important that people feel in control. I do want to recognize that the trauma and especially intimate partner, gender-based violence is very common and often anything going in the vagina can be a triggering event. And so then making sure that you feel comfortable talking with your doctor, saying what's comfortable or not comfortable, uh, knowing a little bit about the different speculums that they use so that if you know uh, a certain shape works better for you, you can actually Ask for it, those things I think people should feel comfortable asking their doctors about in order to make it feel like a safe exam, but it's quick and in my world, relatively easy.
0: <laughs> it's not as scary when you know how quick it is, I think, because then your brain yes. is like, okay, it's only one minute, we're good. Yes, <laughs> I'm curious about how the pandemic has maybe. Impacted women's sexual health. I know my own sexual health, it has impacted, mm-hmm. and I'm sure mm-hmm. many women could say the same, you know, being locked up for almost two mm-hmm. years now. Mm-hmm. How has that changed the conversation that you're having with patients? Have you seen any trends? Yeah, I mean, I think it's
1: changed. So much. Just from the very beginning, when everybody's stress levels went up, that impacts how you feel. That impacts your sex drive. That impacts some people's menstrual cycles. The shutdown of everything impacted people's ability to fill their prescriptions. For a while, pharmacies were only issuing one month of birth control at a time because they were worried about supply. And that can lead to unplanned and more unwanted pregnancies. People were having trouble getting to the doctor, feeling like their doctor was not going to to see them because everything was shut down for things like IUC placements or other necessary medical services. And so that was really hard. And then there's the the personal aspects. You're at home. Intimate partner violence has been on the rise. There's been more stress with people being locked up in their houses together, trying to manage you know being home with the kids people who are single trying to figure out how to date when you can't go see anybody all of it i think has been very hard and it all can play a role in adversely impacting someone's reproductive health and sexual health
0: and have you seen that kind of continue into this year as well and these i guess you could call them trends kind of continuing beyond the pandemic now or are things kind of seeming to go back to normal in that realm I
1: think people are starting to learn to live with a new normal, although we all remain hopeful that this is not going to last much longer. From the medical care standpoint, we are starting to open our doors more. Contraception care has remained as an essential service that's been supported by our Society of OBGYNs of Canada, but not all practitioners kept their doors open. I, and I think now we're in a place where everybody's saying, okay, we got we to gotta see people. And so I think options are better. I think we're figuring out supply chains better so people can get what they need from the pharmacy. And so I do think that that stuff is improving I think people are figuring out what their level of comfort is how they're interpreting the rules I really want to support following public health guidance but people are learning how to date how to get outside how to try to find ways to do self-care that are better so I feel lighter and more positive about where things are going Mm -hmm. now than I did even I think two months
0: ago. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it feels like every month is the same and we're still in 2020. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. On the other mm-hmm. hand, I'm like, oh, wait, like things are starting to open up kind of. It's summer. It's sunny out. Mm-hmm. It feels mm-hmm. a little bit different. I'm really curious. So I'm not in this position. I'm single. I have not been interested in having kids at this point in my life, pretty focused on my career. But I'm curious if, you know, you've seen a trend of women kind of being more hesitant to Plan for children because of the pandemic.
1: I really appreciate that you say that because in the beginning, everybody was anticipating this baby boom, saying, oh, everybody's going to be home. What else are they going <laughs> to have to do but have sex with each other? And in hindsight, that seems so ridiculous because we know how much stress people have mm-hmm. had and nobody's really felt like having sex or it's been hard to find someone to have sex with. And so the answer is yes. I think people have been a bit afraid to. Intentionally try to conceive, not knowing what is going to happen, not knowing what their own risk for COVID is and what that could do to them or their baby, the thought of not having support people in their lives for having a new baby or what that would look like, not being sure of what the future holds altogether, that uncertainty in just how we can't seem to plan our next week, let alone six Mm -hmm. months from now. I do think that hesitancy has been there. I also do think that some people are starting to get a bit more brave. Everything was so unknown in the beginning. And now they're like, okay, there's this virus, there's this thing. Now we have got a vaccine. Now we're learning how to operate together with a, a new way of living. So I don't want to let my fertility go too far. I want to have a baby. So now we just have to try. And so I do feel like people are just trying to figure out how to be brave and move forward because we can't stop our lives forever.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious. So with the vaccines coming out now and everybody's, well, I won't say everybody, a lot of people are getting vaccinated. But this kind of lingering fear that I've heard from some of my peers is around fertility and the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insight on that? Or have you had patients come to you with that concern as well? You know, I haven't had anybody ask me whether or not the vaccine will affect their fertility. We have
1: no reason to expect that it will, because we have a pretty strong history of vaccines and knowing how they work. And we know that critical illness can affect your fertility certainly a lot more. Mm. It sort of has a pretty strong impact on your brain and how your brain releases hormones. I've had a lot of people worried about the effect of the vaccine in pregnancy. and, And that's as much the fact that pregnant people weren't included in the trials when they first did them to the media messages that happened that sort of jumped from saying, no, pregnant women should not have this. It's too dangerous to us trying to say, no, wait, we think it's actually safe. And so I think we did a bit of a disservice in our messaging.
0: Interesting. I haven't followed the messaging around that because I am not currently pregnant, but Mm. that is interesting to know. So as of now, the recommendation is that, yes, it's okay for pregnant people to have the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. We have really
1: good safety data on inactive vaccines. So there's no live virus in this. A chickenpox virus has live chickenpox in it. So we don't give that in pregnancy. But a hepatitis B virus has an inactive virus particles in it. And so we do give that in pregnancy because it just teaches your body how to be immune to it. You know, I think the other thing I wanted to sort of, I guess, say that I thought was interesting in this pandemic was thinking a little bit about that cycle of reproductive health and how we treat contraception after a pregnancy or delivery because often we rely on a visit with a doctor but a lot of people weren't going to see the doctor afterwards and so the space is sort of saying maybe people need a one-stop shop when they have a baby and they come have their baby and get their contraception at the same time and how do we do that better and so it just turns out we can place an IUC immediately after a placenta is removed. And that can be really convenient for some people. And they're pretty motivated to prevent a pregnancy at that point in time. And mm.
0: so
1: it's just sort of another thing that became a little more mainstream to talk about because of the pandemic.
0: That's interesting. So that streamlined, <laughs> I'm calling it a streamlined process. That sounds so <laughs> impersonal, but that has come out of the pandemic then. So I guess, what would you call that like an improvement in the system I don't know how to call yes. that but that's yes.
1: interesting this idea that some things can be same with virtual care you know I don't think it's such a bad idea to say maybe I'm going to send you a little questionnaire to learn about you and then we're going to have a phone call to talk about your contraceptive goals and I can talk to you about the IUC especially if I can get you on a video call I can show you what it looks like and then your trip to the doctor is just to have it placed and maybe that's more convenient for people and so definitely the way we mm. we offer care I think is going to shift and so hopefully in some ways for the better
0: hmm We've touched on stress a couple times in this episode related to the pandemic, and it sparked a question in my mind because as I was growing up, I guess from teenage years to being a young adult, I have struggled with mental illness a lot in my life, and that stress and anxiety affected my period in ways that I didn't really fully connect that it was because of that stress that my period was really irregular. And I'm wondering if we could talk just a little bit about that, or if you could address that, because I'm curious how many women have irregularities with their period without knowing that it's actually connected to something like stress. I think
1: like making that connection requires such a strong Body and self awareness, which can be hard, especially if you're in a sort of crisis. Stress can be defined as different things. We know that if you exert certain physical stress on your body, say you restrict food or you exercise a lot, that that can shut your periods down. You can have irregular periods, infrequent periods, or lose your period altogether. And the same goes for other things I think that drive those stress hormones really up in your body. We consider your menstrual cycle kind of like the fifth vital sign. Most vital signs that we measure as healthcare providers is like your heart rate or your blood pressure or your your temperature of your body. But that menstrual cycle, we we like to call the fifth vital sign because it will go off if something is off in your body. Mm -hmm. Critical illness is a stress. You will lose your periods if you have a critical illness. And so that mental health where I think it all goes back to some of the stigma around mental health, we haven't been very good at recognizing it as a condition that has important health effects and that can translate to physical health effects and that can then result in menstrual irregularities.
0: Yeah, because I know when I had times that I would miss my period, you know, the first place that your brain goes is, oh my gosh, am I pregnant? Even if you haven't had sex that month, you're like, Mm -hmm. wait, am I somehow pregnant? You take the test. No, okay, I'm not pregnant. So what else is going on in my body? What are the questions that women can kind of ask themselves to check those boxes of, oh, this could be why my period is irregular right now.
1: I do think that this can be a place where it is really important to have a check-in with a healthcare provider because there are so many reasons a menstrual cycle can become irregular, and some of them need investigations like ultrasound or blood work. Someone who loses their menstrual cycle because they are really underweight or exercise too much, different things are happening in their body than someone who may have PCOS, for example, Mm -hmm. or polycystic ovarian syndrome, where also they can have infrequent periods. And the risks and the things that we worry about as healthcare providers are a little bit different, even if on the outside some of the experiences are the same. I do think doing a bit of a self-check-in, tracking your menstrual cycles, tracking some of the symptoms that may go with them. When do you get breast tenderness? When do you get cramps? Have you noticed anything unusual? Are you losing hair? Are you getting breast discharge. What's happening in your life that has changed? a relationship or work or sleep or something, just to sort of say, what is your head-to-toe check-in and what is your life check-in in terms of the things that have changed around you. But then knowing that, you know, what's quote unquote normal is a menstrual cycle that comes every month. And if that's not happening, it's probably worthwhile, especially if it persists for more than six months is sort of one of our time frames. So if it's going on for more than six months, you probably really need a doctor's visit. That's not true if you're using hormonal contraceptives. So the thing to remember too is are you using something that's impacting your menstrual cycle? So a hormonal IUC may make your menstrual cycles go away, but that's completely different. You know, we're inducing that. We have a cause and we know that it's safe and we know what it's doing to your body, which is different than the unknown that might be at play.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. So for those listening, what are some tips or advice on how to best approach these conversations with your doctor or... You know, even people in your life, like, I don't know if it's helpful. I think for a lot of women, it would be helpful to be chatting more about these things and Mm -hmm. sharing both the positive experiences and not just the negative. But Mm -hmm. what is some of your advice for those conversations?
1: Yeah, I think it would be great if peers talk together more, friends talk together more about their menstrual cycles, about their family planning plans and how they want to prevent it and their experiences with different birth controls. I really think that that could be great and it could be, you know, couched a little bit in sharing how it felt and what it's doing for you and also where you got the information from or or what your doctor said to sort of do that knowledge sharing, you are the expert in your own experience. And it's helpful to share that. I also think taking that time to visit a website like birthcontrolforme.ca to sort of learn your options, think about what matters to you in terms of your menstrual cycle and how much you want to prevent pregnancy and what might fit with your day to day life It's helpful so that then when you go to your doctor, you can actually say, I want to talk about birth control, or I'm thinking of having sex, or I was wondering about the IUC, how can I get it? Do you place it? You can kind of come Already knowing a little bit about what you're looking for. And then they can hopefully provide some more information and screening and ask some health related questions to make sure that it does seem safe to you based on what they know about you.
0: Yeah, that's great. In my head, the recurring kind of theme for this conversation has been that knowledge is self care in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because it puts your mind at ease knowing if you have the right information, if you choose the correct birth control for you, it can really ease some stress or anxiety around some of these things that are mystical in some ways and still taboo to talk about. To wrap up our conversation, is there any stigmas or taboos about your job or about sexual health or reproductive health in general that you would like to demystify? I know we've already done a (laughs) few, but any frequently asked questions that you get that you think would be interesting to share?
1: I just want to say I love that idea of knowledge is self-care.
0: I think that society has done such a bad
1: job at, or maybe they've done too good of a job at making women feel uncomfortable Mm. with their bodies. And that's a problem to me. And we as healthcare providers need to do maybe a better job at trying to know that diversity is normal, if that makes sense. And so there's the normal health patterns that we expect in terms of your menstrual cycle. There's your anatomy, the anatomy of your vulva, the discharge that you have, the smell that may be there, the right ways to take care of it. What's normal in an experience of sex and the diversity that is in that, and how it, all of these things don't necessarily mirror what you might see on social media or on television. And, and those are messages that we all sort of say are really important. We see so many people who are looking to rectify or modify or change something, or worry there's something's wrong with them, and they're just within the spectrum of normal. And a lot, you know, a lot of what's needed is to you know accept your body and accept yourself and find satisfaction in that. And so, in terms of my job, those are some of the other areas that I think are really, really important. And so then a space to talk about that could be in our office or in our clinic when you're worried about something.
0: Yeah, no, that was great. Thank you so much. I have found this conversation really helpful. Was there anything else that you think I missed that you wanted to share? No, you know, I think we've covered
1: everything. I think when it comes to contraception and to thinking about the IUC, I want to say that it's not as scary as it may sound that, you know, if it's something that seems like it might fit within your lifestyle, it's a great option to try. And just because it lasts for five years doesn't mean it needs to stay in for five years. And for some people that can be important. I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily married to being there for that long if I don't want it to be or it doesn't work for me or actually I change my mind and I want to have kids sooner. And remembering that one size doesn't fit all. So use that opportunity to visit websites like sexandyou.ca or birthcontrolforme.ca to learn about all the different options we have.
0: Thank you again for tuning into this week's episode of Self-Care Sunday. If you're not already, please hit that subscribe button and take a screenshot of this episode if you learned anything new, sharing it on Instagram at Sunday. This episode was produced in partnership with me and IUC, and to learn more, go to birthcontrolforme.ca. Happy Self-Care Sunday, everyone! me